Happy Easter, everyone. I'm so glad that you've decided to join us for another episode of Advancing Our Church. I'm your host, Jim Friend, and today I have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Laura Sokola. Laura is a renowned communications coach, educator, and author, and she has worked with individuals and organizations from all around the world, including Catholic organizations. And I believe as a Catholic expert in this field, Laura brings a unique expertise that will help all of us to improve our communication skills and achieve our goal to advance the mission of our church. Before we get started, I just want to thank our sponsor, Changing Our World. If you're looking to make a difference in your fundraising programming this year, then I believe Changing Our World can help you. Changing Our World offers an expert team that has been providing customized philanthropic consulting services for over 20 years to Catholic organizations all around the world. I invite you to contact them at changingourworld.com, or you can find a link to their website in the show notes of this episode. Once again, thanks to the Changing Our World team for sponsoring this episode. And now, let's get to work. Today, we talk with Dr. Laura Sokola, a leadership communications and influence coach. She's a trainer, a speaker, the author of Speaking to Influence, Mastering Your Leadership Voice. She's the founder of Vocal Impact Productions in Philadelphia, and she spent over 20 years coaching, lecturing, researching, and publishing on topics such as executive presence, leadership communication, vocal empowerment for women in leadership, public speaking, communicating through conflict, and so much more. Her TED Talk, Want to Sound Like a Leader? Start by Saying Your Name Right. I love that title. It has over five and a half million views. She's appeared on Fox Business News, Fast Company Magazine, Forbes.com, Conscious Millionaire Podcast, Coaching for Leaders Podcast, and now Advancing Our Church. Today, we'll delve into Laura's expertise in communication and explore some of the key ways in which communication impacts the church and some of the wonderful ideas and concepts that she's developed throughout her career. Communications is such a broad topic that no matter how you advance our church, I know you're going to get something good out of today's episode. And so, without further ado, here is Dr. Laura Sokola. Well, Laura, welcome to the podcast. So glad to have you here on Advancing Our Church. Thank you, Jim. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Laura, we go back, I guess, a ways. We first met each other on a capital campaign many, many years ago in Philadelphia, and it's been exciting to see you from a distance just evolve in your career, with your business, with your book. Congratulations. I know that you've done so much, not only in the business world primarily, but a lot in service to the church. So it's I'm excited about our conversation today. Well, thank you. I'm looking forward to sharing uh, and, and learning from you as well. Well, Laura, to steal, shamelessly steal uh, your first question from your podcast, which is Speaking to Influence, tell us a fun fact about yourself. A fun fact is that I speak three languages, three and a half. So Spanish, English, Japanese, and Pig Latin, if that counts. My mother likes to say I was the only kindergartner she knew who had mastered Pig Latin. So language (laughs) and communication was always a really big uh, focus for me. That's excellent. Very impressive. My my middle child, Madison, impressively speaks Pig Latin very well. In I fact, see. she actually wrote her college essay about learning Pig Latin, and she got into Temple University because nice. of it. She yeah. wrote it about learning Pig Latin, not wrote it in Pig Latin. I'm That's correct. Yes. Yeah, otherwise, I'm not sure she would have gotten in. <laughs> she might have. It would have she, stood out. That's for sure. Absolutely. Well, I think it was the creativity of it, but thank you so much for that. That's awesome. 
Well, let's start a little, a little bit by helping our audience understand the work that you do. You're a TEDx speaker, you're an author, an entrepreneur, a business owner, an educator, a podcaster, and an executive coach. But I think maybe it's at the heart, I've heard you say when I read your book, that you're a linguist. And, and the work that you do boils down in many ways to helping people to communicate their authentic self. So under that light, tell us a little bit about some of your work. And, and please, to frame our conversation today, tell us a little bit about some of the Catholic work that you've done. Uh, my pleasure. It is, I think you summarized it very well in that I am a linguist by training. I am a teacher at heart and by early trade. And it's my work has always been about trying to help people close the gap between what you think you say and what they think they hear. And that's where I really believe that the vast majority of conflict comes from, whether it's one-on-one -on -one or a larger scale is when two people are looking at each other and saying, but you don't understand. You're not listening to me. You don't understand what's important to me and why and all that. So as long as both people are still playing chicken and saying, no, you listen first, then we're going to keep just with that revolving door of, of frustration. So from a professional perspective, I work with leaders and aspiring leaders in whether it's for profit or nonprofit to help them go from being not just the brains behind the operation, but also being the face and the voice in front of it and making sure that when they need to talk to someone, whether it's to the board, to investors, to donors, to employees, to clients, whoever, that they can take the genius in their brain and the passion in their heart and make sure that when they open their mouth, both of them are visible and clear and compelling. And that's really the, the idea. How do you translate that so that whoever you're talking to in the moment, be it here on a podcast, on a stage, on Zoom, you know, in a, in a small conference room, but the other person hears it and gets it. And in reverse as well, that you are better able to hear and understand them because that's where progress is made. Yeah, absolutely. And even in the most basic sense of those of us who are blessed with the vocation of marriage, listening to our spouse. And you were talking about that just a little bit ago before we started recording about the some of the pre-cana work that you and your husband are doing. Listening is so important, whether yes. you're a spouse or a fundraiser or what have you. 100%. And that is something my husband and I have been leading pre-cana workshops on communications for a number of years now. And it's something that I also work with with postulants in the in the church, in the archdiocese, when the, for those who aren't familiar, the postulants are the pre-seminarians that, that discernment year, um, trying to figure out where, what's the right path? Is it the right path? And if so, which one? Moving forward into some more formal vocation work. But in working with them, whether it's on homiletics, whether it's on lecturing, whether it's on uh, conflict management is actually a big piece of those kinds of workshops as well. And in some ways, it's not different from the work that we're doing in the in the pre-cana space. It's trying to help people listen to what the other person is really saying, where it's coming from, understanding what's below it. Often people speak very emotionally when they're upset about something, not always accurately, not always diplomatically, not always fairly. So to figure out how to disengage from that emotional layer that sort of that coats everything else and figure out how to get to really what's at the root. What do they actually mean? What are they trying to say? What do they need to hear first? What do they need to say first? And then being able to better move the conversation from there. So it's people are people. That's the thing. Mm -hmm. And trying to figure out how to, what's at the core of their need to be heard and understood is going to be the door that gets you into having your needs be met as well. 
So well said. And, and there's so many tools out there now to listen, right? To to gather people's input and to then be able to be proactive about that. And you know, one of the things that I think about just when I when I was reading your book, which I highly recommend to our audience, especially if you're in the work of communications or development, or geez, even as a husband, <laughs> it's some of the skills are so basic and so so helpful. When I read the phrase what got you here won't necessarily get you there. And, and you were referencing in the book, some folks reach mid-career and they become an expert in their field, but they need that little extra bump to give them that, that executive presence. And that's where you come in to kind of help them bolster it. But it also thought about how that applies to the work of our church. You know, the, the primary tenets of our faith will get us to salvation in the end, but maybe some of the ways in which we communicated that got us to this point in time need to change to help us to be better communicators in a world that is so ultra, where communication is so ultra accessible uh, mm. and, and so different than it was back, you know, as, as when we grew up. So how do we portray that and portray the authentic teachings of the church and, and use the tools that we have today to help us get to the next level? right? To, to get us to get to where we want to be as a church? That's a really big question. It is a very big question. So I don't expect you to have all the answers, but I just, I, I'm just throwing it out there. Sure. So the, the quote that you referenced, the what got yeah. you here won't get you there. That's of yeah. course the iconic book that I was referencing at the moment mm -hmm. by uh, Marshall Goldsmith, which yeah. I highly recommend to anybody who's in a leadership position or as, uh, aspiring to one. Sure. But, oh gosh, you know, when I'm coaching or, or training teams, it is always the idea that, look, you're going to go up, you're going to continue on the career journey on that ladder up to a certain point based on your technical skills and expertise, mm. finance, fundraising, uh, you know, engineering, whatever it happens to be. But then there's this ceiling and your ability to break through that, what I like to call the linguistic glass ceiling and transcend into a leadership role rather than an individual contributor role or even potentially a manager role is whether or not you can make that shift. And it's about how you engage people and can you get through to them in a way that makes them feel satisfied. And that's where I help people make that transition. So, you know, as far as the boy, communicating the the core values of the church, which, you know, fundamentally have not changed in 2000 years, mm -hmm. but making them relevant mm. to today's audience who are far less, if you look at what's the, the primary uh, trending content on Netflix and any of the other big streaming services out there, kind of goes antithetical to an awful mm. lot of the core values of what we are taught. So the question then becomes, how do we make it relevant? And I think one of the tools that we can learn straight from the Bible itself, from Christ himself, is storytelling. Christ taught in parables. He didn't lecture. He, as a matter of fact, he almost never told anybody directly what to do. Right. It was the story. And what story will this audience appreciate? He's not dumbing it down to them. He's not talking down to them or insulting. He's not talking over their heads and trying to show how smart he is by using lots of big words and, and mm -hmm. quoting various people. He's just speaking at their level and being human and being relatable. And that's something that we often forget to do in our daily lives. We A lot of people get stuck in what I like to call the expert's curse, which is where you know too much. You know your statistics, you know your catechism, you know your this, you know your that, you know your budgets, your numbers. And so, A, you forget what not everybody already knows. You forget what not everybody cares about or wants to know or thinks is relevant. And we forget that they don't necessarily need to know all of these things. What do they need to know 
for you to hear what you need to hear. What's going to be the shortest distance between those two points? And, you know, often, for example, when managing up, many people may be familiar with that phrase. So when you have to present to your boss or pitch an idea to somebody who has a lot more clout than you do, there's a little nerves, a little anxiety that kicks in. There is the need to prove how hard you've worked, how much, how much work you've done, how much research, how much time you've invested. So we tend to instruct or inform by fire hose method, right? Open mouth, turn on fire hose and drown the other person in data and spreadsheets and way too much stuff. Right. And you just can't drink from the fire hose as the recipient. So take the need to prove yourself by sh- and show how smart you are, show how hard you've worked with all those big vocabulary words and all the jargon and stuff aside. Distill it down. Einstein, very much not a Catholic, one of his great quotes is, uh, if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. Ah. Uh-huh. Very good. I like that. So how do you distill it down to a story, a parable, an example, a case study, a personal connection for them or for you that will suddenly make them go, oh, not I understand. Got it. Excellent. That was probably one of the the bigger questions I've ever asked anybody on this podcast. I'm glad it was much bigger than that because I got that (laughs) done. I just want to say you you facilitated that so well and and gave such a beautiful answer. What I want to pick up on is just what you were saying about using big words and sometimes maybe using theological terms that the average person in the pew may or may not fully grasp. And I'll give a great example. Just this past weekend, I was speaking with one of my brother diaconate candidates, and he asked me what the, the word catechumen means. Mm. Now, catechumen, we hear every every year at Mass that we need to pray for the catechumens as they prepare to be baptized at the Easter liturgy, at the Saturday night liturgy. So I wanted to make sure I had had it correct. I, I looked it up just to make sure I had, it, it is folks who are preparing for the sacrament of baptism as adults. But this was a, a fourth-year diaconate candidate. Not, yeah. not to throw him under the bus and he shall forever remain nameless, sure. but that's the educated one. So there are more, many more folks in the pews who do not know exactly what the term catechumen means. And that's mm-hmm. just one example. So I do think when, one of the things that our parish has done, St. Anne's and Emmaus, we've had conversations around the pastoral council table about making sure that whatever we put in letters or in the bulletin is very accessible language so that it's more welcoming and inviting. And you talk a little bit about that in your book as well. Yes, yes. You have to speak the language of your audience, whether it's from Spanish, Japanese, or Pig Latin, or yeah. just changing that vernacular, the the level of vocabulary used. I mean, the church, God love it, is... Not great at that. You know, we had a, a shift a couple of years ago, not very long ago, maybe 10 years ago or so, in, in updating the mass, the language of the mass itself. Yep. And it's trying to make it, it, my understanding was that they were trying to universalize it a little bit more so that regardless of the translation, it was still as consistent as possible. But they actually ended up making some of the language less accessible. Uh, the, the one word that everybody, you know, any reporter from any resource, Catholic otherwise or otherwise, they loved. It went from one in being with the father to consubstantial with the father. Goodness gracious. You know, really substantial. So, you know, we're looking at what is the objective in making this change? Are we looking for continuity for translation purposes for whatever? Or is it about accessibility to the audience? You can't serve two masters. And this is one where something got sacrificed along the way. So then it becomes our job as as representatives of the faith in whatever capacity to make sure that when we're sharing something, we retranslate 
So they did their job on the organizational global continuity level, but now that just adds one more layer of responsibility for the rest of us who are trying to do the actual uh, execution of it mm-hmm. and carrying out that that faith here. So yeah, there there are challenges with language along those lines, but always remembering not to talk down to anybody else, but to think in terms of, is this transparent in meaning? Are they going to be able to look at this and go, oh yeah, I get it, versus, well, I, I mean, I... I think I understand. Right. Because if that's the answer, then the answer is they don't. Correct. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. You know, you touched on also just being wonderful storytellers. We we took a couple of homiletics class in the formation program for the diaconate. And that is one of our calls as we prepare a homily to make it relatable to to today. Uh, And so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about some of the different channels that we use when we communicate. You had talked about that in the book, the credibility, vocal and visual or nonverbal. And and what I just found so interesting is just how once they're a little bit out of alignment, the message can dramatically change and you can wind up giving absolutely the wrong the wrong message to your audience. Sure. So when we talk about channels, we're not talking about, you know, network versus cable versus streaming <laughs> services kind of a thing. Right. The when I talk about channels as in personal communication, it's about the idea that credibility as a leader in whatever capacity, or even not as a leader, we're talking about, you know, your partnership with your kids, with whoever else. When you speak, we communicate through three quote unquote channels all at the same time. And it's the verbal, the vocal, and the visual. In other words, your words, your voice, and your body language. And there's a lot of misconception about how much of communication is in ha- carried in one channel or another. And there's lots of miscited and misinterpreted quotes. You've probably heard many of them bantering about like, well, you know, 55% of all communication is nonverbal. No, mm-hmm. we don't have time to get into why that number is out there and sure. what it actually means. But what is most important is that It is the alignment, the connection between those three. That's what make people trust and believe you. And they may not agree with you. That's different. But at least to to believe that you're truly sharing something that you believe is true and that's more likely to connect with them. So just by way of example, so the words are the actual transcript. Let's get that clear. If I were going to transcribe this conversation, we look at what, you know, YouTube transcripts, closed captions, whatever it is, that's the verbal. The vocal is the sound of those words as they're coming out of my mouth. And the visual is what I'm doing with my hands, my facial expression, your, your, how I look set up here on the screen, et cetera. But if, there's, if they're out of alignment, then it gets confusing for the audience. So if I were to introduce myself to you and just say, actually, you know what? Let's back it up for a second. If I said to you two words, let's look at the verbal transcript alone, nice haircut. But I said to you, nice haircut. Or I said to you, nice haircut. There's definitely a difference. Two different meanings. Yeah. You take it differently. Absolutely. Especially when the meaning is simpler, a whole lot more can get distorted by the delivery of it. Mm. Or, you know, if I'm, if I did say to you, yeah, uh, nice haircut. I mean, sure. I don't know if anybody's just listening as opposed to watching, but I'm I'm just looking over in the corner. I'm not looking at you at all. It's like, do you know that I got my hair cut? Can you see that I have hair? Do you, mm-hmm. you know what you're claiming nice, but I have no reason to believe you because I don't think you've even looked at what it is that you're commenting on. Similarly, you're making a, a statement of your faith. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I've been Catholic. I, I like being Catholic. You know, the church is, is good. I'm, I'm glad I'm part. It's okay. okay. Well, what you claim doesn't sound like what you mean because there's that 
disconnect when you're arguing with somebody, you know, or you have a difference of opinion and you say, I understand where you're coming from in your perspective on that, whether it regards what the topic is you're deliberating, you know, there's a difference between saying, look, I understand where you're coming from. Yeah, I understand it versus I, I, I understand where you're coming from. And I do want to talk to you about it. One is utterly judgmental and a yeah, whatever. And one is a lot more empathetic. So it's that ability to really be, and that's where the argument about, well, it's not what you said, it's how you said it. Mm-hmm. That argument comes through. And it's not that the what, the how you say it matters in general more than what you said. It's that in that moment, you don't seem to believe what you were saying. You were out of alignment. Therefore, I do not believe what you just claimed. That's where that phrase comes in most. It's not about a universality of the how you say, you know, you can say things really lovely in a lovely way, but have it be bad content too, in which case, you know, I could say to you, you know what, I just, I, Jim, I just think you're an idiot. I, I, you know, you're, you're, it's great. I mean, we're friends, you know, I just think you're an idiot. It's, right. Well, I'm saying it nicely. Does how I said matter? No, you just called me an idiot. So clearly right. the, what you say does matter just because you said it nicely doesn't make it better. So it does really, really have to be both. And that's where we tend to miss because we don't realize where we are out of alignment when we speak. You know, it, it reminds me of, I had a boss that used to say the right message delivered the wrong way is still the wrong message. Yes. You know, and he he was always very conscious of that because he had to deliver a lot of tough messages sometimes as a person in, in leadership. Sure. And, so, and sometimes our bishops, our pastors are also in that position where they oh, have sure. to deliver a, a difficult message, whether it be a parish consolidation, a closing of a school, something, an incident happens that we've had lots of incidents in the Catholic church without going into detail over the last 20 years. Sure. Longer. <laughs> Longer, yeah. But how do you d- deliver a difficult message? You know, what what is the best way to, you know, because some, some, sometimes in crisis communications or when things are, are really tough, we, we find sometimes that we're maybe not connecting with our audiences or maybe that situation is thrust upon a pastor who doesn't feel quite equipped to deliver bad news to his parish. What, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, it's so situationally dependent. Sure. Um, Good point. You know, there's there's a big difference between scandal versus, you know, we didn't meet budget. And so we're going to have to put off having a CYO basketball team this year. There's, right. <laughs> so what's your definition of bad news? Mm-hmm. Are you laying somebody off? Are yeah. you, you know, was something stolen? What's the nature of the, is there a massive conflict? I think when in doubt, a general rule of thumb is lead with empathy. And you can be humble and confident at the same time. And that's important. So even if you have to acknowledge that you made a mistake, you want to apologize for something, you want to, you know, a leader needs to be able to acknowledge when they were wrong, when they failed in some capacity or other. But there is a difference in if you're still looking for your your congregation or your followers or your team or whoever the audience is to still trust you as a leader moving forward because you still are. And if you still want them to stay, then that's important. Everybody makes mistakes. So if your ability to run a team is based on them thinking that you're perfect, you're doomed. Right. That's not going to work. So to be able to own up to something or to be able to share news transparently and say, look, there's there's no conversation I want to have less right now, but we need to talk about stuff. I'm going to own this. I need your help. Or I want to apologize for you. This was a mistake that I made. And here's where what I didn't see. Here's what someone told me and I didn't listen to. And regardless of my reasons or not, I own this. This was on me. And I'll make it right. Or I need your help to make it right. 
whatever it is. But as long as it's not a def- and this is where you know the nuances of the delivery and the words make a difference. Because if you're going to come with your tail tucked between your legs and and sort of really kind of mumbly say, um, yeah, so I I um, I okay, so that didn't quite go according to plan. And I know you told me not to, and I did it anyway. And, you know, coming as like the contrite 13 year old, who's just waiting to get punished, doesn't say leader moving forward, but someone who says, I I made this call and it was the wrong call in retrospect. And I own this. And while I made the call, look, I I own it. And okay. So look, I, I made the mistake and just, you're really not owning it. You're saying it, but you're still super defensive. Mm-hmm. Like we're not on the same team yet. We're not on the same page. So there's so many details. Think about it this way. When you think about how do you deliver all the different aspects of your voice and of the words that you use and your speed and your volume and all that stuff, think about them as being different levers on a DJ's mixing board. Hmm. So what's the perfect sound for this particular song? Maybe a little bit more treble maybe a little bit more bass, maybe a little bit less reverb, maybe a little bit more something, maybe a lot more this or that. If it's going to have a lot of brass versus a lot of drums versus a lot of something or other. So there is no single answer of what's the formula, but it is going to be a lot of watch the the video afterwards. You know, If you can even try, best tool I can give you, role play, whatever it is you want to say to somebody and watch yourself on video. And then when you watch it play back for yourself, go, would I buy into what that person is saying? <laughs> or would I just go, oh my God, I can't believe you think I, you know, how does that person sound? Because you'll be amazed at what the video reveals. And you're like, I, I thought I was coming across as sincere and apologetic and I came across as totally stiff and disengaged. Or I said, um, 47 times in the first 48 seconds. That's not helping me or them or anybody at all. So get the video cameras like your best friend who has no filter. Whatsoever. Yes. <laughs> Just tell you what you got to work on really fast if you want to be more effective and be heard. It's black and white. Yeah. Yeah. Understood. Well, I, I, it reminded me of a situation that we experienced years ago uh, in our parish. Actually, we had a situation where our pastor was found with pornography on his uh, oh. child, child pornography on his laptop. I was the board chair of the school at the time as one of the parents. <laughs> And so I had a good relationship with the principal who called me that morning to tell me what had happened. And there was a question. Uh, we had a we had a parent-teacher meeting scheduled that evening. I was supposed to attend, say a couple words as the board chair. And of course, the principal would conduct the meeting. It was put on the table at one point during the day. Do you even have the meeting? You know, is, is this just a, a difficult, too difficult of a moment because we're in the heat of it? And we decided to go ahead and, and have the meeting because we felt that that communication, even if we didn't have a whole lot of information to share at that time, just being present to the parents was the right thing to do. And so I'll never forget that night. Mm-hmm. I got up, I said a couple of words of, in support of our principal, in support of the school who had nothing, you know, no part in any of this, obviously. Our principal got up and said a few words. Obviously, the superintendents and representation from the diocese was there. But something happened that none of us expected. There was just a long line of parents who wanted to come up and thank Diana, the principal, for her leadership. And even many of them hugged her to console her as the leader of the school who was put in this impossible situation. And it was just a, a great example of sometimes just being in front of a situation like that and stay. And, and even if you don't have a lot to say, the fact that we didn't 
cower away and not be present to the people who had so many questions. And and there were some clearly irate parents at the time and they had sure. things to say and, and we didn't have a whole lot of answers because it was a situation far beyond any of our control, especially the principal. Yep. But the fact that she had the courage to be present just spoke volumes of her leadership. And I think I'll never forget that night. Incredible. Of course. I mean, she she embodied so many important qualities at that point. And you and the whole board and those who said, no, let's bring it to the parents now was transparency, number one, which is we don't hide stuff here. We're going to share it for you for, with you for better or for worse. There was empathy involved, I'm sure, as far as you were all shocked at this, dismayed right. by it. It needs to end immediately. We're taking action. I mean, you did. Every, it seems like you did everything right. And that's what people want in their leadership. We Certainly, we don't want to hear the kind of news that you had to share, unfortunately, right. at that point. But if we did, okay, there are two options, ways to make it better and ways to make it worse. Exactly. So at least show me that at the, that first inflection point, you took the right fork. Yes. Yeah. I think that paid dividends in the years to come. And just especially as parents were thinking about, do I re-up, even though this is a tough situation? And, you know, it didn't go away for a long time because it was sure. very public in the news. But we yeah. didn't lose we didn't lose that many folks, many kids at all. And I think it was really because of in that situation, we just continued to overly communicate as much as possible. But I'm not sure that you can really overly communicate in a situation like that. We stayed ahead of it is probably a better way of putting it. Yes. So some of the folks who are listening, different topic. Our uh, development directors, we talked a little mm. bit about, about some of our audience before we started, or they may be an executive director of a nonprofit, or maybe they report to a board. You talked a little bit earlier in our conversation around managing up. And in your book, you talk about that, you know, perhaps in a, to a secular audience, but it certainly works to any audience. And, and you talk about, I liked your advice on using the meeting to show how you strategically think about issues, because sometimes reports to boards can just get so blah and monotonous and here's what we did. And, you know, but but to really show how you're thinking strategically is really helpful. I, I try to do that in my own work because it shows how you're trying to move the ball forward. Right. And, and that's what people are looking for. Leadership. Can you talk a little bit about that? There's about four different angles in that I can think of. Is there a particular, <laughs> as just as far as managing up more or storytelling? Yeah. Or which, yeah you, you know, or? let me give you something even more specific than that. Apologies. Uh, this isn't a better question. But a lot of our folks struggle with motivating boards as well. Mm. And that's a that's like a, across the board, even outside the Catholic world. Nonprofit directors are always trying to motivate and, and engage boards. How do you use those meetings to kind of leverage their attention and show them strategically how they can plug into that, plug into your your mission and your plan, so to speak. The storytelling is always important because you're going to show a lot of data typically in board meetings. And one thing that's not often transparent from the numbers themselves is the story behind the data. What right. don't the numbers show me? Where did some of these numbers come from? What is either historical or what is impending? What are some of the other influential variables? Um, what's attacked that you believe will change these numbers moving forward and why? But being able to tell the story of the numbers is always an important piece. What's the backstory? And just not getting involved in going kind of cell by cell through spreadsheets, which can be yeah. really not engaging. Right. Frankly. Very monotonous. And especially when the board meetings, like every other meeting on the planet nowadays, is being held virtually, it's way too easy for people to tune out and multitask. And I'm pretty sure the new 2023 Webster's Dictionary is defining multitasking as being paying attention to everything except you. 
Oh, interesting. Okay. So, now, of course, I'm being facetious about that. I don't exactly <laughs> the division, but nevertheless, you know, it's it's very mm. easy to tune out if you're just droning on about numbers. So, when in doubt, storytelling, giving mm. the information behind the data, you putting those numbers together, spent days, weeks, months deciding what belongs on that slide. What do you know that you forget that they don't mm. about this? What does this tell you? How should they feel? Here's another piece. It's very important to editorialize as you report. So people don't admit this because they're not consciously aware of it, but when they're listening to you give these kinds of reports of sorts, they do want you unconsciously to tell them what to think and how to feel. So for you to be able to share information, for example, things like we're really optimistic about this next quarter because, or we were surprised by these kinds of things. Okay. Because you're indicating how you feel about something, you've primed their brain to have that as a filter. Oh, I'm going to be optimistic about something. Good. I like optimism. Let's tell me why to be optimistic. And they're hungry for it. So they're already, there's something called confirmation bias, which is when you're expecting something or you believe something to be true, you look for data that proves you correct. Mm -hmm. So then they will be ready to receive information that is optimistic or that they will find interesting. So you know, we, we want to prime, for example, that's what I call editorializing is letting people know on a subtle subjective level how to, what they should think about it. So why we need to do these kinds of things or, and how to feel little words like optimistic or, you know, the difference between something that's falling versus plummeting is huge, you know, or a massive opportunity versus a potential opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, those qualifiers change my emotional state when I listen. And that then helps me follow you on the journey toward whatever response you want me to give you. So much behind that. You know, one of the things you you mentioned in the book also is, I think it was called the five by five principle when it comes to PowerPoint slides. Sure. I've seen way too many novels written on PowerPoint slides. And then another, just a, a small piece, but one that was, I re was reminded of a sister of Mercy who I used to work with, who worked with folks with disabilities. Mm. And she always told me, always use a microphone, no matter what. And, and you mentioned that in the book because you never know who's in the room who might have a hearing loss. And, yes. and a lot of times, especially in our churches, we're dealing with, you know, the senior crowd in many cases mm -hmm. that will show up for a prayer service or stations of the cross. Mm -hmm. So important to mic yourself. And, you know, again, these are just some mechanical pieces, but I think so important to underscore. Now, one last, one other thing, two other things before we, I know we're, we're getting close to the end of our time here, but I loved your description of vocal fry. I've heard, vo <laughs> I think we've all heard vocal fry, but I, I didn't know it was called vocal fry. <laughs> so yes. can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Vo vocal fry is a, is a, really it's due to lack of breath support, but often when you run out of air as you're talking, or otherwise, if you're maybe emotionally a little hesitant, it kind of gives you that creaky, crackly, gravelly sound like I'm demonstrating now. And uh, there are those people who will just kind of maybe because they're slouching in their chair or just because they're otherwise indifferent or a little nervous, they'll, it, they'll constantly perpetuate that affect. I mean, it could also be a sign of something more medically wrong, uh, right. vocal <laughs> nodes or acid yeah. reflux or allergies. There's lots of things that could cause it. But sure. in the end, it and there are those who will simply start clear, but then kind of trail off at the end of their sentences later on for a number of reasons. But regardless of the active cause, what the listener hears is someone who is, well, you tell me, I mean, Jim, if I conducted this interview and spoke like this the entire time, what would you infer? 
Yeah, not a lot of people would probably be listening, right? Because it would, you know, for all of us, it'd be a little annoying to listen to. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's the annoyance on the one hand, and how do I sound to you? Not confident. Yeah. Just hesitant, indifferent, sleepy, Mm -hmm. like I've been smoking two packs a day since I was eight. You know, there's all sorts of things. (laughs) things. But none of them are positive. Right. Right. None of them say confidence, leader, approachable, relatable, trustworthy. So we really have to be careful not to project those qualities. Should people make that association? Not necessarily, but they do. So be mindful. If you don't feel those negative things, make sure you speak with a clear voice so that people don't misinterpret you for having those qualities. Absolutely. And and my, my last question for you today, or just conversation topic would be tonality. In the diaconate program, we're taught to make sure that we don't draw too much attention to ourselves, we're trying to draw attention to the word. So not to be dramatic, in other words, or overly dramatic when we read the gospel, for example, or mm-hmm. you know the readings at church. And I, and I find, because I'm a lecturer at church, I'm, I'm trying to be very careful that I feel like sometimes I'm walking a, a fine line on that. I, I want to show inflection, mm-hmm. uh, and I want to try to bring the scriptures to life, but I also don't want to look like I'm trying to do a one-man play, you know, sure. to bring the scripture like Can you talk to us a little bit about that tonality? Of course. The word inspiration or the word inspire comes from the Latin inspirare, which literally translates to breathing spirit into something, breathing life into it. When you lecture, this may be the only chance for many people in the congregation to hear that passage. It may be the first time they've ever been in church, or it may be the last. They may not own a Bible, or if they do, not plan on cracking it anytime soon. So what are you going to do to make sure that those words actually stick and that you're not just wah, 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 while they're thinking about the upcoming brunch or the football game later that afternoon? And the way that we deliver those words does breathe life into the text. And I think that is important, finding that bounce. Look, you'll never please everybody. Let's get that clear. Because for everybody... On the one hand, who thinks when you animate the words a bit is really interesting and engaging and lovely. Somebody else might go, oh, he's being melodramatic. And at the same time, you know, on the other side, you know, if you're keep it simple and clear, because that's the way you're supposed to do it. Just, you know, read it straight. Don't, don't, don't interpret it for me. Somebody else is like, oh my God, that guy's so boring. It's just, he doesn't even believe what he's reading. He's just reciting the words off the page, not even thinking about it. So Let's get that aside from the fact that you'll you'll never please everybody. Right. But I do think it's important to read well. I've done readings at people's weddings, for example. Mm-hmm. And especially at wedding passages, often it's Book of Genesis. It's the the you know, so many different places, whether it's the Adam and Eve story or something else. And it it they are stories. That's the point. So there should be something that should engage and captivate the audience in it. And I mean, they're reading from Corinthians. Corinthians, uh, you know, love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous, which is the most beautiful text in the most monotonous writing style for someone to read out loud. It's anything but loving and kind in its delivery. So when I've read it with a deliberate storytelling cadence and pacing and a little bit of variation here and there to draw people's attention to certain things that... I've had people come up to me, including a rabbi that I spoke to when I was reading at a mixed ceremony where he was Jewish and she was Catholic. And so we did a little bit of this and that. You know, even the rabbi came up and said, that was really beautiful. That was a great story. I'd never heard. And I'm sure he's probably heard that passage before, but nevertheless, 
it connects with people. And I've had people say the Adam and Eve story, you know, taking the rib from Adam to create Eve. And somebody said, I never realized that was a story. That was the first time people, I don't know, come up to me afterwards and say, I never realized that was a story. Because of the way you told it. Yes. That being said, there was also someone at a former parish I used to attend. I appreciated her effort in wanting to tell the story, but honest to God, it was like listening to Captain Kirk. It was from the Starship Enterprise. She was so over the top. It was utterly distracting. So, you know, there were others who loved when she read. I was not one of them. But, you know, I appreciated her effort. And I just tried really hard to focus on the words and ignore the rest. And even in working with the, the postulants that I train on lecturing, there are many who feel like, well, it's not up to me to interpret for people. I'm just supposed to deliver it. And I want to be reverent in delivering. Right. But often when you're reverent and just giving people the words to allow them to put whatever meaning they want into it, then we do recording and we have them go back and evaluate their own and they go, yeah, I was aiming for reverent, but I realized it was kind of dry. So the best of intentions don't always translate. So it is really important to find that balance regardless uh, to make sure it matches. I read all the time. My wife and I have a prayer channel actually where I read every day. But I read something probably five or 10 times before I actually get up in front of the congregation, mm. because like you said, some of these scriptures are, are worded so strangely. It's just not everyday speak. No. So it doesn't flow off. And so understanding where to pause, where not to pause, where to keep going. I, I just find that re- they're reading the thing five or 10 times and really out loud so that I can hit all of my marks is just so important. Yes. Great, yes. Great mark point. it up. I do it too. If yeah. I have to do a lecturing. Mm-hmm. putting in where there's going to be a pause, which word I'm going to punch up. Am I going to extend something deliberately? That's where do you want to draw people's attention? Because they're only half listening for right. the most part. So help them get the other half of the way there. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Laura, any closing thoughts? This was a great conversation, by the way. I'm thrilled that you brought up the, the uh, using a microphone. And that goes for whether you are in person or virtual. A, if you're, let me, see, I wonder if I can play with this here. I want to demonstrate just the difference sure. of being on a, I'm using a good microphone that I use for my podcasts and for my trainings and stuff. But even if you are, uh, let's see, that's audio here. If I went from speaking on this microphone and then suddenly I shifted to using this microphone, do you hear a difference? Big time. Yeah. Big difference. And this is how most people sound. Well, didn't you immediately think, oh, I don't want to listen to that. This sound makes people tune out. So if you need to speak to people virtually in any capacity on a regular basis, trade your microphone. You don't have to spend a thousand dollars. No. You don't have to spend a hundred, especially if you're in fundraising. Oh my gosh. Don't be penny wise and pound foolish. You need a good microphone. If you're live, same. Please don't say, oh, I don't need a mic. I I have a big mouth. Ha ha ha. No, the fact that you might. But that doesn't mean that the acoustics in the room aren't sabotaging you. It doesn't mean that people, as you mentioned, whether they're 20 years old or 80 years old, that they can hear you. There was a priest at a church I used to attend. He was a decent homilist and whatnot, and he had his beautiful kind of James Earl Jones voice. But Mm. he actively believed that he wanted people to have to work to hear him, to to pay attention more. So no matter what, the microphones and and the speakers in the house were always at about this level. And I thought... I have perfectly good hearing and I'm straining to hear you. And frankly, you're not that interesting. I'm not (laughs) sure that I want to have to work that hard to catch your words, especially when most of it is 
frankly, just the liturgy, which I don't need to hear you because I've got it pretty memorized at this point. Mm -hmm. So you're making me want to tune out and I'm here voluntarily and regularly. Who's your audience? Don't make me work just to hear what you're saying. I actually think that's quite arrogant. Forgive me for passing <laughs> no, <it's>, it <laughs> But I think it's massively arrogant. You sure. need to give people the ability to hear you easily. So use the doggone mic and turn up the house system. If you're mm -hmm. going to make people work just to hear you, I guarantee they won't bother. Yeah. So there's Great my point. final plug on how to not lose congregation. <laughs> Laura Sicola from Vocal Impact Productions. The podcast is called Speaking to Influence. The book is called Speaking to Influence. And we'll make sure we leave links in the show notes of this episode. Laura, it was a real pleasure to have you on today's show. Thank you so much. Jim, thank you so much for the opportunity. Always a pleasure. God bless. I want to thank Laura for being on our show today and for helping us to understand the many ways in which we can improve our own communications and our work in the church. I'll leave links to Laura, her company, and her wonderful podcasts in the show notes of this episode. Once again, thank you, Laura, for being on our show. Well, that's our show this week. Special thanks to Pottery Studios for helping us to produce another great show. And if you'd like to help our show, please leave us a rating wherever you downloaded this podcast. And if this is your first time listening to Advancing Our Church, I hope you're going to stick around and subscribe. You can find us on all places where you download your favorite podcasts. You can find us on YouTube. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. And for more information about our show, please visit us at advancingourchurch.com. Once again, many thanks to our sponsor, Changing Our World. Again, you can find a link to their website in the show notes of this episode. Well, that's it for me, everybody. Happy Easter. Have a great week. Take care. We'll see you next time. God bless.